going to ask Brian to come up to introduce our speaker, and uh, I'll open in prayer as he comes up. Father God, we just uh, thank you from the bottom of our hearts for what you're doing in each and every one of our lives, Father. Uh, your love is the gold standard, Father. Um, this world wants to believe it knows what love is, but Father, your word tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. And Father, that's the gold standard of love, that you would sacrifice your own son on our behalf. And Father, we thank you for gathering us here this morning as a band of brothers to encourage each other in each of our respective roles and to, uh, to sharpen each other, to make us uh, better for your kingdom, more effective for your gospel, and, uh, and to help rescue a lost and dying world around us. Father, we thank you again. We ask you to bless our time together and bless uh, uh, each and every conversation at these tables. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I get the privilege of introducing uh, Pastor Aaron Syverson. Um, I've had the joy of being alongside him as an elder at our church uh, for the past uh, five years when he started in 2017. Uh, Grace Church recognized his ability to minister and just his love and passion uh, for the Bible and wanting to teach and working with groups. And a lot of times I, th I think we like to say we we brought him in, but I think he, he really had a discipline in him over time that really built up. And uh, if I get this right, your father, um, Lloyd, who was pastor at Great Church also, uh, was the youngest of four boys that became a pastor. Aaron is the youngest of four boys that became a pastor. Now, he has four children also, Aaron does, but uh, they're not all four boys, two girls, two boys, but the youngest is... A boy, so maybe there's a, a trend that has been set in this family. Um, but uh, I think uh, Grace Church saw what he was doing, we pulled him in, and uh, he has been um, a joy to be alongside as he ministers to people, works alongside people. And over the past few years, I've really gotten to witness how he um, takes to heart what's going on with uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord and coming along and walking through the things they're going through in their life. And so in that, um, I've just seen how he takes the Bible um, and applies it in situations and brings it to life for people. And in that, I'd like to bring Pastor Aaron up so he can um, teach us more about what God has to say. I feel like you took it easy on me there, Brian. I, I, I did. I didn't bring up to Jeff. I've seen this hot seat before. Um, but I appreciate it, guys. I appreciate the opportunity to come and, uh, and speak. I've been able to do it, I think, each of the last few years in my... Um, my hope is just to light the match and spark some good discussion around your tables. Um, you know, every time I speak here and think about, and maybe this is my age and I'm younger than most of you, and my heart is a lot for younger men within the church in our area, is that my, my hope is that you're encouraged this morning. My hope is that you're challenged this morning. Uh, but beyond that, my hope is that you take this as an encouragement challenge to go encourage other men. You know, you have, I don't know, 30 to 40 men here, but how many men at your churches and your communities and your families are represented at this in this room? And um, just BCS in general, that you guys are fed with good teaching here. But part of that, and this is our passion at Grace too, is not just to come and be fed, but to come and learn how to feed. You know what I mean? Right, that, like, that this would be a training ground also for you to go and feed others. And um, man, men in our area, uh, I'd say especially men in that, I don't know, 18 to 40 range are, are silent sufferers in Burton County. 
uh, a lot of pressure, a lot of stress, and feeling like they can't or won't share anything about it. So um, that's just that's something I always think about coming and speaking to you, and I appreciate the opportunity. Um, this morning, I want to talk about the drift. I want to talk about the drift. I want to talk about the reasons for it, the signs of it, and then the remedy against it. And I want to do so in the context of my story. Uh, as Brian mentioned, I um, uh, grew up a pastor's kid. Uh, I know many of you knew my dad personally. He, he served at Grace, where I serve now, for 17 years. Um, it was actually almost 10 years now that he transitioned up to Greenwich, uh, Connecticut. And people uh, meet me now, and they hear I'm a pastor's kid who's now pastoring the same church. And you know, people might hear that and go, "Okay, that that makes sense." Uh, you know, that he went to the family business, right? Uh, the very lucrative family business of local church ministry in Bergen County. Um, and the reality is, uh, I had no interest for, or desire for, or expectation of ministry, all growing up, even through college uh, and coming home from college. Um, my first five years out of school, down at TCNJ, I worked um, as an analyst in equity research. Some of you guys might know the name Bill Hench. Um, he was a guy who actually helped me land my first job. He was at Grace at the time. Um, and I remember after five years and then you know the whole process of then transitioning to ministry and trying to close that door over and over and over again, and God just kept opening and opening and opening, uh, where I went to my boss's office to resign and tell him that I'm going to be a pastor. Uh, and we, we were a small equity research firm uh, that uh, a lot of guys would come and work out for a few years and then jump to one of the big banks. They go to Wells Fargo, they go to Deutsche, they go to. And so we, our boss would be furious when guys would leave because he just knew that he just couldn't compete with those. And, uh, and I, I'm 100% positive I'm the only one that's gone to his office to tell him that I'm leaving to go be a pastor. Uh, he had no words for me. He just said, all right. And, and uh, I just kind of turned around and, and left. Pray for me. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, my, my reason for not wanting to go into ministry is not because I had a bad experience being a pastor's kid. Um, it's not my story at all, but for many uh, who uh, did grow up with a parent in full-time ministry, uh, there, there's, you know, a, there's a stereotype to some degree, but there's some truth behind it of how destructive it could be. Um, curious, anybody in here have a parent who's in full-time ministry, whether a pastor or one? couple, all right, and I know maybe a couple of you guys are in full-time ministry with uh, children, uh, but so I'm generalizing here, but there's there's two ways that a pastor's kid can be really damaging. Uh, a good dad, but a bad church, or a good church, but a bad dad, and you know, let me unpack that quick. First, a good dad, you know, some of them have a good dad who loves them, cares for them, and make time for them. But, but pastored a bad church, just theologically, just the church was either very fundamentalist and legalistic and kind of no love and just this idea that we're going to beat the world and it's us against everyone, um, all doctrine, no love. Um, or it could be a progressive church that was kind of no doctrine, but all love, right, where, you know, a bad church theologically. And so you could grow up with a good relationship with your father, but have a bad theological framework as you get to young adulthood. Other would be, another way to do damage would be a good church that was gospel-centered, that is proclaiming the word, that's making an impact in the community, uh, seeing people come to know Christ and vibrant discipleship happening, uh, but, but a dad who made an idol of that ministry, a dad who uh, had nothing left for his family. And so oftentimes wives and kids in these situations would, would hear from everybody else how awesome their dad is. 
man, like your dad's just the best. He's so gifted. He's helped us so much. And in the back of their mind, they're nodding, but they're thinking, I don't see that at home. Um, either it's just complete hypocrisy or he is made an idol of ministry and it's all out there and nothing here. It'd be nice to see some of that here. So there you grow up with the right theological framework, but a terrible relationship with your father, and that does damage. Now, a major grace on my life is that I had a good church and a good dad. Uh, not a perfect church and not a perfect dad. Not idolizing either, but a healthy church and a loving dad. And now it's something that sobers me as I strive for. Now, with, uh, as Brian said, four kids my own, ages seven and under. Uh, that is far easier said than done to do both. Um, but the reason why I share that is because when I left home and went to college, I drifted from the Lord, and I cannot point to either a bad dad or a bad church as the reasons why. And, and I drifted in a really significant way, and as I reflect back on that season of my life, um, I realize that oftentimes when we talk about somebody drifting from the Lord, there's a, there's a negative reason that people point to for it, right? Not an excuse, but a reason to explain it. Oh, they drifted because this happened and they decided to drift. My story is that I drifted from the Lord, not because um, uh, something bad happened, but ultimately a lack of bad things happened. And, and, and for me, that's almost much more concerning because if you have kids or if you had kids, like you, you want them to have the boring testimony, right? Like my wife has the boring testimony. Grew up in the Christian home and just over time, ups and downs along the way, but just grew, increasingly grew her love for the Lord. No season where she's really drifted, unlike mine, which was a significant drift for a few years in those college years. And, and so that, that my story shapes a lot of the way that I think about pastoring today. And we talk a lot about a grace, is about the difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing Jesus. When I went to college and things got hard, and I'll explain that in a second, um, the hard things in life expose what is true about us. The hard things in life expose what is true about you, it exposes what is true in you. And what got exposed in me in that time is that while I grew up knowing a whole lot about Jesus in my head, I knew very little of Jesus in my heart. And I was grown up physically, I was grown, grown up intellectually, but I was still a child spiritually when I went to college, and it got exposed. And so when I say college was hard, I don't let, mean I went through a hardship in ways that we typically think about. Uh, there was no physical illness, um, or loss of a loved one, or kind of this intellectual crisis, you know, that philosophy teacher that rocked your world, that wasn't my story. Um, but it got harder to walk in the spirit and not gratify the flesh. What got hard for me was I wanted the things of the world so bad. <clears throat> and it became easier to access them when I got to college. And a big reason is that the accountability was, was gone. And what got exposed was I was a child spiritually. I got out of shape. Uh, I had the opportunity to play basketball down at TCNJ. One thing that, um, you know, Division Three, not big time, but, you know, they think they're big time in the moment, you know, uh, on a D3 campus. And um, when it comes to physically being in shape, playing basketball on the team kept me accountable to stay in shape. So uh, what happened was your season would end in sometime February, early March, and then we'd have about two weeks off, and then you'd have that meeting with your coach, and they'd introduce the off-season uh, conditioning program. 
and, and you know, they're pretty intense. And they said, we need to keep you in shape in this offseason so you don't come back into next season not in shape. So season after my senior year, um, my being upset that my playing career was now over was um, partially offset by the fact that for the first time, I did not have to do an off-season conditioning program. Uh, I was free to do what I wanted, and I could work out whenever I wanted, and I didn't have to work out whenever I wanted, and the accountability was gone. What do you think happened to me six months after my senior basketball season? I got out of shape pretty fast. I put on 20 pounds in like six months, and it wasn't all at once, it was a little bit at a time, but the accountability was gone. I didn't have to be in shape. And at some point I stepped on the scale and I was like, whoa, how did I put on 20 pounds? How did it happen? I drifted, it was a slow drift. And that's a physical picture of what my spiritual reality was my first couple years at college. It wasn't intentional, but that was the point. The accountability was gone. I got exposed and I entered into a season of significant struggles, significant uh, entanglements with sin and a real lowering of my affections for Christ. And as again, as I reflect back on that, and the reason why this is important is, is not because this happened once in the past, but that the drift is always in front of us, isn't it? I want to read one verse, Hebrews 2, verse 1. It says, Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. My story is, in part, a story of how easy it is to drift. And again, that drift is not just something that is always in the past, but it's something that's always before me. It's something that's always before you. It's always something before the men that you have in your life that you have influence over and in that verse, we're given a major reason for drifting in the Christian life. And it's not paying attention to what we already know. And how I would apply that is a hearing that leads to head knowledge, but does not translate to the heart. Uh, perhaps you've heard this before, but the pathway of the Christian life, it's head, heart, hands. You, you, you hear and you learn by hearing, you understand by believing in your heart, and then you apply it by doing. Head to heart to hands. And we're not saying that head knowledge is unimportant. It is absolutely vital, but it's not sufficient. And I got fooled growing up into thinking that because I knew about Jesus in my head, that that's all that was really required. And the difference between knowing about and truly knowing in a way that leads to the affections, leads to the heart, a knowing that leads to loving. And it's so easy for professing believers to claim to be a Christian, and perhaps you know this in, in your own story with a, a parent or a sibling or somebody close to you, or um, somebody professes to be a Christian, and yet they live lives that seem so hypocritical to the way of Christ. And, and that, that could be jarring for people. Like, wait, you're, you're, you're claiming this and you're claiming the right things. You're saying good things, but I'm watching the way you live, man. And I'm just like, I don't, like, this isn't connecting at all. What happens in those situations? They have stopped paying careful attention to that which they knew. 
There was a blockage between the head and the heart that leads to nothing being seen with the hands. And so, brothers, I want to know how much you think about the drift, the reasons why it happens, the signs of what it looks like, and then the remedy of how to defend against it. Um, we all have different stories. Um, I just shared a very small piece of mine, but anybody can kind of probably share a story of something similar, something in your life where you know you've drifted, but I think we can all resonate it with it at some level. And again, my hope is that you also would be equipped to how to lead other men who might be experiencing the drift as well. But here's the thing about drifting and why it's so scary. It's never intentional. You never see it coming. But it's always the natural path of your flesh. Nobody drifts into holiness. Nobody drifts into a greater love for the Lord. The drift is always out to sea, the other direction. Um, I think this is one of the major reasons why God ordains that every believer be part of a local church. And I know and I appreciate the way that NCS has really talked about this, that NCS is a vital ministry as a supplement to the local church and not a replacement for it. Uh, one of the events a years ago, I heard, I forget who it was, it was one of you guys, but they said, guys, we exist here to strengthen you for your local church. We don't want to be your men's ministry. We want to strengthen you to go equip the men in your church. And I always appreciated that uh, because the church is called in Ephesians 4 not to do ministry, but to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. And that's one of the biggest things out of whack in the church in America today is that it, it, it's, a, it's a consumer ground. I come to church to get something. But, but the reality is that, uh, it's not just, again, to be fed, but to feed. And your pastor and your elders and your, your lay leaders at your church should see themselves as equippers more so than doers to equip you. And because when every member is equipped, then the whole body is built up to maturity. That's what it says in uh, Ephesians 4. That's the goal, that we're all built up in maturity, that we don't just grow up intellectually, but we grow up beyond being children in the faith. And the reason... He says, to kind of keep this theme of drifting alive, he says in Ephesians 4, so that we no longer may be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. There's a lot of cultural doctrines out there today that are threatening to make you drift and the men in your life drift. I want to fast forward to uh, the summer going to my senior year of college. Uh, it was really months after the Lord really turned my life around, and I'll have time to go through kind of how he did that, but it was over a lot of circumstances that he really drew me back to himself by his grace. I went on a mission trip with Athletes in Action down to uh, Central America, Guatemala, and El Salvador. And uh, so it's all a group of college basketball players who were playing around in different cities, playing against different national teams, running clinics for kids. Really amazing trip. Uh, on one free afternoon, we went to a beach on the Pacific Ocean in Guatemala. And the guys who brought us to the ocean said, hey, hey, guys, you can go swimming, but be careful. The riptide here is no joke. Um, even if you've swum in the ocean before, just be careful. And you say that to a bunch of 20, 21, and 22-year-old men who are in shape and think they're just way too cocky about themselves. They're like, yep, 
Like I'm, I'm like, let's, let's go. Like I, I, you know, I'm fine. I've swum in the ocean before, except for the guys who like live in the Midwest and they've never swam in anything but a pool. Then they're like, all right, I'm out. Like that's all I needed to hear. I've never seen the ocean before. But for those of us who have swam in the ocean, we go in and we're swimming and we're body surfing and we're throwing a football around. And we're after about 30 minutes, and I'll, I'll never forget just the vivid fear I had is that I literally, you're just playing, you're playing, you're body surfing. I looked up and I saw how far we were from shore. It was the furthest from shore I've ever been. And I never noticed it happen because it was a slow drift. And when you drift and you stop paying attention, like it says in Hebrews 2, when you stop paying careful attention, when you stop training, you're more prone to be swept away. That's the word picture that the author of Hebrews and that Paul provides, just trying to get this in our heads. It's never intentional, but it's always natural. And the reasons for drifting, this is something that I think you guys would need to kind of take and just try to do some introspection, maybe in discussion at your tables. What are the reasons you know that you are prone to drift? It's not the same list for everyone. Um, but to study yourselves and understand those risks, uh, maybe it is a temptation of the flesh like I had in my college years. Uh, maybe it's a past or current addiction that's going to rob your affections for Christ. Honestly, for most of us, Bergen County, it's busyness. It, it, it's not taking time to just stop and, and, and reflect because our life is full and it's full of good things. That's the hard part. Family and work and BCS and, and all these different things that we're part of, church involvement. But things get so jam-packed. And there's no time for reflection. It's like you're in the ocean, just body surfing, body surfing, throwing the football, having fun. And then you look up and go, whoa, how did I end up out here? Maybe it is a trial in life, um, an illness, a job loss. Maybe it is doubt that you're seeing maybe some of the failures of church leaders or uh, professing Christians. And it makes you doubt faith and truth. And you're wrestling with truth in the Bible. And it's casting a cloud over your walk with Christ. But whatever it is, what they all have in common is that it leads to a lack of paying attention. And it might not surface at first, but you might get out of shape over time, little by little. Those are the reasons for it. What are some signs of drifting? Uh, some signs that I often see and that I know in my own life, but I see often, especially in men in the local church, what are signs that they're drifting from the Lord? You begin to cut yourself off from community. You begin to isolate yourself. You can come up with the reasons why you can't go to that small group. You can't go to the church. You can't go to BCS. And you just begin to isolate. Because when you isolate, you can justify a little easier. <clears throat> Another sign is a lack of hunger for spiritual things. The Bible is not as enticing as it used to be. Prayer is just hard to do for more than a minute. All the things that can be getting done, I don't have time for this. A desire to hear biblical preaching begins to wane. It's just a burden. I think a sign of drifting is that we become self-focused. You heard the phrase navel-gazing? It's just this. Everything in my life, everything that's happening around me, I don't really care or know. I'm just staring here. It's navel-gazing. Um, I, I know myself, I, I get a more critical spirit when I'm drifting. There's a difference between critiquing and being critical. And being critical of people around me, only focusing on the things that bother me, never looking to encourage others or see the good in others or 
or assume the best, always assuming the worst, grumbling, thinking we're the victim with everything, um, thin-skinned, impatient. I, I think these are all signs of drifting. And so here's how I want to finish. We got the reasons for it. We got the signs of it. But the most important part is what is the defense against it? What is the remedy against drifting? Can I tell you what it's not? And as men, this is usually our first impulse. What it's not is I just need to shame myself to do better. I just got to try harder. That's my natural reaction to sin. And it's one that has never worked. <laughs> it's one that will never work. It just often leads to more shame. Um, th this is a cycle that I know I need to spin out of sometimes. And maybe you can resonate with this. Is that I, I find that I've, I, I have a cycle of sin. And then shame. Because I know it's sin. And then a desire to just try harder. But then I inevitably fail. Which leads to more shame. And that shame then leads me back to the sin where I started. It's a vicious cycle. But the breakthrough that God brought to me and one that I still need to preach to myself is that in those moments, it's not just try harder and it's not you got to figure out something new. But back to Hebrews 2, brothers, it's paying more careful attention to what I already know. The difference between needing something new and paying more careful attention to what I already know. To recapture what has saved me in the first place. An intentional return to the gospel. That it was never my doing that put me in God's good graces. It was purely by his free and gracious will to save me. Uh, Tim Keller has a famous phrase that the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. It's the A to Z of the Christian life. It's not just the introduction, it's not the front door, it's the foundation of the whole house. It's not the ABCs, but the A to Z. You'll never outgrow the gospel. You never need to move on from it. It is to pay careful attention to it and continue to live it out. And that intentional return to the gospel, I just want to read a passage from Philippians 4 to kind of say how this worked out in the Apostle Paul's life. When he says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing, there's the word, knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Listen to this. Not that I have already obtained this. He says, I struggle or I'm already perfect. I'm not. But I press on to make it my own, listen, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The key phrase there. The phrase drenched with gospel truth and the key for defending against the drift is I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. The only reason we can press on 
and intentionally lean into Christ is because he has already made us his own, and that is not by our doing. And that gospel reminds us that we don't pursue Christ or godly lives in order to gain acceptance, but we pursue him because we have already been accepted by his grace. Pay more careful attention to that which you know, brothers. Don't just try harder, but confess that we cannot earn anything, and it's by receiving his son by faith that we are transformed from the inside out and can press on. Here's how I want to finish. Uh, I always get to a place where I'm like, I need to be more, more practical than this. How does this practically look on your life on a Wednesday, on a Saturday morning? When, when, when you can start to sense the drift is happening, what do you do? I think it's best, and, and this quote and the discussion questions, I don't know if you have them yet, but it's a quote from J.I. Packer that I also printed on there. J.I. Packer wrote this probably 60, 70 years ago, but it holds up. What's this look like in your life to resist this struggle against this drift? He says this. This gives a, a clear, this gives direction to a clear and consistent strategy for our encounter with sin and temptation. As Packer explains it, our living should accordingly be made up of sequences having the following shape. We begin by considering what we have to do or need to do, recognizing that without divine help, we can do nothing as we should. We confess to the Lord our inability and ask that help be given. Then, confident that prayer has been heard and help will be given, we go to work. And having done what we could, we thank God for the ability to do as much as we did and take the discredit for whatever was still imperfect and inadequate, asking forgiveness for our shortcomings and begging for power to do better next time. In this sequence, there is room neither for passivity nor for self-reliance. On the contrary, we first trust God and then on that basis work as hard as we can and repeatedly find ourselves enabled to do what we know we could not have done by ourselves. J.I. Packer's famous for saying that phrase, let go and let God, terrible phrase, throw it in the garbage, put it to the curb. He said, rather, trust God and get going. Trust God and get going. And the collateral benefit to those around you and your families, and your churches, and your communities, when you remain close to Jesus and do not drift, is immense. It multiplies. Everybody wins when you stay close to Jesus. Generations will thrive. Revival will come. Martin Lloyd-Jones studied revivals across church history. You know what he said? That revivals don't start with non-believers coming to Jesus. Revival starts with sleepy Christians waking up. How much do you want that with me in this area, amongst men, amongst churches, amongst Christians? To spark revival by waking up. Pray that with me. And then trust God and get to work. Would you pray with me? Father, I just pray for us now as we now enter to a time of discussion, knowing that it will be brief. But I pray, Lord, that it just lights the match. That this would allow some time for healthy introspection as we look at ourselves in our own lives, but ultimately are driven to look to you. And I pray, Lord, with our eyes fixed on you. You would keep us and sustain us from drifting from you. And that by clinging close to you, you would use us to be a blessing to those around us. That's your name we pray. Amen. 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 Yeah. God, just as we close, like I think for a lot of us, it seems like, and especially for me, the biggest thing today, accountability. We gotta we gotta look out for each other. We gotta seek each other out for our sake and for, for the sake of others. And what Pastor Aaron said right at the beginning, like 
let's come to be fed, but then also learn, learn how to feed others. And that's what we're called to do. Uh, a friend of mine uses this illustration all the time. I think it's super funny, but I think it's really applicable. Um, that's what we're called to do as Christ followers. You, you already signed the terms of agreement. Maybe you didn't read it, but we're called to, to feed ourselves, but then also go out and feed others. So reach out to somebody, talk to somebody who maybe you haven't talked to in a while, or maybe there's some guys that you meet with that hold you accountable that you haven't seen in a little bit. I know that's my, that's my takeaway for today. I got to reach out to those guys. Um, but if you don't have that, talk to somebody, seek somebody out because that's, we're not made to do this alone. We're meant to be in a relationship with God and be in a relationship with each other. So let's go do that. Um, dear God, thank you so much for today and for Pastor Aaron coming and sharing um, and just, yeah, really emphasizing and reminding us that we can all drift and it's natural to drift away from you, God. And so we don't, we don't need to be ashamed of that necessarily, but we need to be cautious and aware of it and seek each other out and be in relationship and in community um, so that we don't drift without ourselves or without others realizing it. And so God, um, I just pray for the men in this room and for those that we know um, that we can just seek you out and seek out each other um, so that we can we can pull each other back in and, and continue to encourage each other and seek after you and not, not let ourselves drift as we are so often prone to do. And so God, I just pray that um, we can continue to seek you out, continue to, to be fed, but also go out and feed others. And pray all this in your name. Amen. Amen. Amen.